Well, welcome to the in-between, because that is where we find ourselves at this point. I don't know about you, but I kind of like this in-between thing because I'm not quite there, but I'm not really where I used to be. I'm not where I'm going to be, but I am on the journey. And when we have the holidays fall like this, where literally our service kind of is in the middle of it, we find ourselves in this strange place. And listen, that's not just even about these holidays. A lot of us find ourselves in the in-between right now, or in the meantime, right now in life. You know you're not quite where you want to be, where you're going, but you also know you're not where you used to be. You're just stuck somewhere in the middle. And I want to talk about that today and sort of use this time as a springboard for that. I want to use the scripture, Mark chapter 4, verse 35. And this is where Jesus was about to get in a boat and he was going to go across the lake, the Lake of Galilee. We call it the Sea of Galilee. It's a lake. He was going to go across the lake to the other side after a very long day of working very hard, ministering. He'd just given uh, Mark's version of the Sermon on the Mount, and he had been with all these people, crowded, and, and just and found himself worn out. And here's what he says. That day when evening came, he, Jesus, said to his disciples, let us go over to the other side, leaving the crowd Where? behind. Do you know that Jesus, even though he was the son of God, he was also the son of man, which meant he was in the flesh. John 1.14, which we've talked about over the last few weeks, and the word became flesh. He put on an earth suit and moved into the neighborhood. And the word became flesh and lived among us, dwelt among us. And so Jesus himself coming to this earth, which means he got tired which means he got wore out. And he too found himself in some in-between and some in-the-meantime times. And we're going to break that down for you in just a second. Let me just ask a little survey. How many of you recognize this? None of the men here will, just so you know. Because this is a mall directory. Yeah, see, you wouldn't be caught looking, you wouldn't be caught looking at one of these, right guys? You know, when they flipped H-E-B here a while back, and it was funny because there was this lady walking around with little printed maps of where everything was, and she tried to hand one to me, and she said, I'm handing these out for all the guys because they all seem a little bit lost, so I did a map so that they'd know how. I said, ma'am, I hate to bother you with this, and I hate to burst your bubble, but no men are going to take that. And if they do, they're not going to use it. So I had to be the bearer of bad news. She was uh, fighting a losing battle there. But we men don't like maps a lot. But here's the thing. A map is designed to show you where you are and help you get to where you're going. And it's to help you navigate. So this is one of them all. And I don't know if you've ever walked up to one of those. Uh, Lock and Terra has those all over the place. They're big. They're huge. And you walk up to them, and they're actually very confusing. It's sometimes difficult. But it says on that map, you are what? You are here. This is where you are. And not that that helps a lot because you're looking at that little red dot and you're thinking, but I need to get over there. And that's like three wings over, 18 stores. They're all numbered. That still doesn't make sense to me. So sometimes it's really difficult to navigate and find your way around. But yet, we need help finding our way. So I want to give some practical things today. I always try to give us something that's helpful. That's one of my criteria of building a sermon, trade secret giving away right here, is 
I ask this huge question, massive epic question, every time I do a message, and it's this. Is this helpful? Because if it's not, it's just content, words, and information. Does this help? Is there something we can do? Is there something that, that it provokes action, something we can do to act upon and assimilate these truths into our lives? So today, I hope this is going to be helpful and practical for you. In the meantime, did you know that that's actually a phrase and it has an origination? It actually means something. We've thrown that term around. Well, in the meantime, I'm going to do this. Well, in the meantime, I'm going to do this until I get over there. And it literally means this. The key word in it is mean, which in this sense means middle. That's what mean means. It means in the middle. So in the meantime means during the time in the middle between two events. So when you say in the meantime, you're talking about right where we are and right where we find ourselves on this Sunday, sandwiched between two holidays and the end of one year, a chapter closing, the beginning of a new year, a new chapter beginning. I don't know about you, I like new beginnings. I like new chapters. I like getting a, a blank journal and going, oh my gosh, I get to start writing. What is God going to write on the pages of your life? What story is he going to write about you this year? The phrase in the meantime goes back to as early as 1340, based on meantime, an intervening time or the middle. Also, first attested in the 1300s. The mean in meantime has nothing to do with malice. They just wanted us to know. That doesn't mean somebody's mad. When we say in the meantime, it's not about being angry or frustrated. It's related to mean in the sense of average from a French and Latin root for middle, making meantime literally a kind of in-between time. Now, we can talk about that as far as periods go in between 2019 and 2020 or between Christmas and New Year's or what about where you find yourself in life right now? And I'm hoping what we talk about today is going to give you some help and some direction. Every week, or every day, actually, for years, I've produced a, a graphic and I've produced a kind of a devotional thought. I put it, post it on Facebook, LinkedIn, Twitter, Instagram, and those are the platforms that I push that on, or post that on. And today I did this based on our message today, and I feel like what I wrote about captures the essence of where we're going with this. Again, it's the same scripture, Mark 4.35. That day when evening came, he, Jesus, said to his disciples, let us go over to the other side, leaving the crowd behind. I want to focus on that, leaving the crowd behind. But I want to share with you what I posted this morning. And uh, if you can ever want to look, it's on there. I also put it on our Bridge Church Facebook page as well. Between here and there, do we assume Jesus ran from miracle to miracle with no regard for the care of his own soul? Not true. He withdrew often. He spent time alone. He broke away from the crowd. He was found sleeping in a storm. Jesus not only modeled the life of a kingdom shaker, but that of a healthy and balanced person at the pinnacle of his life. Jesus lived 30 years to exert three of intense ministry when he was introduced on the scene as the Messiah, as the one they had been waiting on. And yet in the midst of that, we find him doing these things. Between here and there, Jesus did these things. He slept. He rested. He withdrew. He enjoyed friends. He attended weddings. He engaged in quiet conversation. 
He spoke with his father. He modeled soul care, mindfulness, and how to be present in the moment. As we turn the page on another year, may we be intentional about the care of our soul, our souls, in the midst of the demands this life brings. So I have to ask a question. Is your soul tired? What is the soul? Well, it's, we're tripartite being. We're body, mind, and spirit. We're all three of those, and they make up the soul. It's the seat and center of your mind, will, your emotions, and your feelings. It's, it's the center of who you are. The soul is you. That's you. You can't just take that apart and dissect it. It's the, it's the whole of you. So my question to you is, is your soul tired? Do you find yourself weary? Well, newsflash, so did Jesus. Jesus didn't just run from one place to another being busy, trying to cram in everything he could in three years before he had to to make his move on the cross, subsequently the resurrection, the ascension. No, Jesus took time to take care of his soul. And if he's the Son of God, the King of kings and the Lord of lords, and He took time to step away and to benevolently detach. Benevolent means to be kind. He was kind to His soul. Yes, it culminated in the the crucifixion. That was part of the plan. But in the meantime, we see Jesus resting. We see Him sleeping. We see Him hanging out with people He loved. You may or may not know this, but he didn't often stay in Jerusalem. He went to Jerusalem, but he stayed in Bethany outside of Jerusalem. It was just a short hike over there, and he stayed in the home of Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. Why? To get away from the crowds. Jesus himself had to pull away. Scripture says he withdrew often into wilderness places or desolate places or barren places. Why? Because he was taking care of his soul. And I look at at it this way. If Jesus, the King of kings and Lord of lords, had to withdraw and had to take care of his soul and had to be mindful and present about this and intentional about this, how much more do we need to take care of our souls I don't know about you, but I'm in this for the long game. I, I'm in it. I'm in it for the long game. And that means when I'm 80 and 90 and God willing, 95 and on, I want to have the spirit of Caleb on my life that says, give me my mountain. I'm ready. Amen. Caleb at 80 years of age stood on that mountain and said, I'm ready for my mountain. It was a promise and I'm ready for it. And at 80 years of age, he even made the comment, I'm as strong now as when I was 40 years of age. So let's look at Jesus at a time when we find him in the meantime. So listen to this on verse 35. Mark 4.35, that day when evening came, he said to his disciples, let us go over to the other side, leaving the crowd behind. They took him along just as he was in the boat. There were also other boats with him. So we see them pushing off from the shore and going to the other side across the lake. By the way, the sea or the lake of Galilee is huge. It's a massive lake. But you can see all around it. And from anywhere in the lake or on the shore, you can see the other shoreline way off in the distance surrounded by hills. 
Remember when he said in the Sermon on the Mount that a city on a hill cannot be hidden? As he said that, he's standing on the shore of Lake Galilee, and they're, they're looking at the rim around the lake, and they're seeing all, and they all knew, living in the Galilee, that at night the hills would light up with people lighting lanterns, candles for light. A city on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor does anyone put a light under a bushel. He was looking at the hill. So he was actually speaking to the geography in which he was at. And look what happens. They launch out and they go across. There's other boats as well. And a furious squall came up. A squall that's a storm, a sudden storm, a violent storm. And the waves broke over the boat so that it was nearly swamped. You get the picture there. They were in peril. They were in a precarious situation. This came up, and the interesting thing is because the sea of, or the Lake of Galilee is surrounded by hills, you can't see clouds coming. They didn't have weather apps on their phones, I'm just saying. I've got three of them on this one. And uh, they couldn't tell what was coming, and a squall could come over the hill and suddenly be upon them while they're out in the middle of the lake, and that would cause a dangerous situation. And that is exactly what happened. And so we see... The, the knee-jerk reaction of Jesus is this. Jesus was in the stern, sleeping on a cushion. Wait a minute. Jesus is sleeping in a storm. A dangerous storm. A squall. A violent storm. And Jesus is asleep. I can't help but think that he was dreaming of another kingdom can't help but think his mind was somewhere else. But he was resting. In the meantime, Jesus slept, preparing for the next leg, recharging, restoring from the last leg of work. He's asleep. And look what happens. The disciples woke him and said to him, Teacher, don't you care if we drown? Mind you, this is the one who said, Cast your cares on him, for he cares for you. This is the one who said, Don't worry about anything. The flowers of the field don't worry. The sparrows don't worry. And God feeds them. God takes care of them. So why are you worrying? Why do you think you can add any height to your stature or any expanse to who you are? By worrying, he said, Don't Worry. They're not because they understand their Father takes care of them. This is that Jesus. And they're saying, don't you care? Aren't you concerned if we drown? Let me just tell you something. If you're in the middle of the storm, the best place to be is in the presence of Jesus in the middle of the storm. I'd rather have Jesus on my boat asleep than be in another boat and not have Jesus at all. In the middle of the storm, Jesus slept. You know what's interesting to me about this verse? It's not the storm that woke him up. <laughs> he was content, not worried at all. In fact, it was probably rocking the boat and just making it that much easier to sleep. It's always when a rainstorm comes, you want to raise your windows for the smell and the sound and hearing the thunder. I sleep well through that stuff. Annette and my, wife, and my daughter do not. Me and the dogs are great with it, but not, not the family. Jesus slept in a storm, and it was the disciples that woke him up. And they shake him. They're worried. Don't you care? So in verse 39, Jesus got up. He rebuked the wind. He spoke to the wind. Talk about the power of words. Power of words in the mouth of the anointed one. He spoke, and it was. 
That harkens back to Genesis chapter 1. When God said and it was, and God said and it was, and God said and it was, and He saw and it was very good. Jesus gets up and He speaks with authority because He understood who He was. He got up, rebuked the wind, and said to the waves, quiet. Now some translations say peace, but it literally, that would be irene or shalom, but it's actually a different word. He rebukes the storm with this strong word. He tells it to be still, and it's, it went from violent to perfectly calm. Then the wind died down, and it was completely calm. And that word there, uh, I did a little, little study on that, and it, it means going from violent to calm. Violent. Not just, not just a little bit rocking the boat. We're talking violent. In Jesus' words, calm the storm. Verse 40. He said to his disciples, Why are you so afraid? Do you still have no faith? Jesus is asking them a question, not just about this storm, but didn't you see what I did before? I've healed the sick. You, you knew about the dove landing on me and identifying me as the one and that being assigned to John the baptizer. I joked about that on the other night. He wasn't John the Southern Baptist. He was John the baptizer. And he said, do you not know? Have you not seen? He says this, do you still have no faith? These were, in a sense, unbelieving believers. Their theology was shaken because they were afraid that they were going to die in a storm and the Messiah would be lost. They, their theological box was way too small. Let me tell you something about coming into a new year. You may have your theology all together and tidy. I'm going to tell you straight up, I don't. I have learned to make room for mystery in my theology. Because every time I think I've got God figured out, am I the only person this happens to? He rocks my boat with a storm. And my theology has to go out the window and bow to a much higher authority. You know what theology is. It's theos and logic. It's logicking about God. All theology is is thinking about God the way we think about God. As we come into a new year, don't just drag your same old theology into the new year. Make room for mystery. Make room for what God wants to do. Make room for Him to blow your mind and if need be, swamp your theological boat. They were in the safest place they could be. In the presence of Jesus, even if He was asleep. Do you still have no faith? They were terrified and asked each other. Because this is what we do. Whenever we hit a crisis, whenever our mind gets blown, what do we do? We look for others to validate our position, do we not? We do. We all do this. Who is this? Even the wind and the waves obey Him. We even sang about that. The wind and waves. Even the wind and waves obey Him. Who is this? I thought they already knew He was a Messiah. Their theological box was getting blown up and expanded. Their vision was getting expanded to something more. So, where is Jesus for you? Where's your theological box? Is it small? Is it large? Try not to drag it over into the new year. Why don't we step into a new year with an open mindset? Say, Lord, whatever you want, 
whatever you need to do. I've invited the Lord to blow up my theological box, and I think he gets a kick out of it, frankly. I want to give you a couple of things that are very practical in nature, but it's based on what we just saw in Jesus, that he withdrew from the crowd. He left the crowd to go do something. So it's called the one-minute pause, and I shared this a while back. Annette and I, a number of weeks ago, a couple of months ago, we went to Colorado Springs, uh, and we enjoyed being there with uh, John Eldridge and the Ransom Heart team and ministry. And he got up and basically, in, in, a, in a nutshell, basically said, I realized I woke up one day, I'm getting old before my time. And in one of his podcasts, he said, I asked the Lord, why do I look so hard? Why, why do I look old before my time? And the Lord basically said to him, and at least it is what he felt like the Lord was saying to him, is that, you're doing things I haven't asked you to do. You're wearing yourself out. And he realized he's flown his, his, his airplane into the side of a mountain, so to speak. And it was a wake-up call for John. And he said, I have not taken care of myself. I've done all this ministry, been all over the world. We've launched all this stuff. We've worked ourselves almost to death. And he realized he had been doing things God had not asked him to do. Well-meaning, well-intended, but not his assignment. So he took a hard pause, took a step back to reevaluate, and this is what they came up with. Now, they've been practicing this for some time, but this factored into it. It's called the one-minute pause. I shared this a while back before the holidays when I talked in a sermon called um, Stormproofing Your Holidays. And I introduced this. And several of you have approached me and said, that one-minute pause thing has been so helpful for me. So helpful for me. Some of you ignored it, and now you're wishing you hadn't because you needed it during Thanksgiving and Christmas. So here we are. We're going to reintroduce because I want us to move into a new year with some tools and some equipment. So I'm going to give you this. The one-minute pause, it's, it's a one-minute pause. We practice benevolent detachment. I love that word. That means kind distance. A kind distance from people or from situations or circumstances. It's the practice of understanding we must be kind to our souls. Body, mind, spirit, that is who we are. That is our soul, our heart. And ask this simple question, Jesus, what would you have me do? Wouldn't it be good if we did that before the situation arised? Am I the only human who waits till you're in the middle or behind it and go, oh, wait a minute. Lord, what should I have done? Jesus, what would you have me do? What is required of me in this situation? Where do I draw the line? This is that detachment thing. How much of my time, energy, and resources would you have me give to this? These are simple, basic questions that we sometimes fail to ask until we're already in it. So in the meantime, in the between, this is a good time to learn this and begin to implement this into your life. So the one-minute pause, I'm going to show you the... The app, you can get this at the app store. You can get it for your phone, your iPad, whatever. It's called the one-minute pause. It looks like that. I want to show you a picture of it so you see what it looks like. And I want to encourage you to get it because it's a tool you can have on your phone. I use mine a lot. I've got about a 16, 17-minute drive in. I put it on my phone. It comes over my, my stereo, and I practice this on the way in. There's a 10-minute version, 5, 3, uh, and 1. I like the 10-minute because it branches off into other things. So, but it's perfect for my drive in. So here's the one-minute pause, and this is in very simple terms. Here's what you do. 
You simply tell Jesus, I give everyone and everything to you. I give everyone and everything to you, God. It's very simple. But I'm telling you, every time I say that, even just saying it as an example, I felt a release. I was like, ah, I give everyone and everything to you, God. And I have to tell you, the more you do this, the more natural this will become. And it'll start to become where it's a part of your own prayer life. That's the first part. I give everyone and everything to you. Can you just sense the power in that? When you release and let go, the things that we hold on to are the things we smother and kill. We've got to live life with an open hand. Here's the second part of that. Jesus, heal my union with you. We talk about that in communion. Heal my fellowship. Restore to me the joy of my salvation. Look, I'm not afraid of my relationship, but I want my fellowship to be alive. I want it to be vibrant. I want it to be running over. And then the third part, very simple. Jesus, awaken me to the truth of your presence in me. Christ, in and through me, the hope of glory. Fill me with your spirit. Simple question. Just a simple ask, Lord, fill me up. Because I want to be living out of the saucer and not just the cup. Living out of the place of overflow. How about we do that right now and we go into 2020 full, ready, equipped, prepared for whatever may come in this new year. If you're like me, you're probably hopeful and expectant. I am every year. And not every year turns out the way I thought it would. In fact, most don't. But that's okay. Because if I'm prepared and I'm equipped and I'm focused and I'm walking with him, my union is solid, my fellowship is on point, then it doesn't really matter the circumstances that come my way because there's grace for it. So another thing, I'm going to end with this. I'm going to invite our, our worship team to come up. We're going to end in worship. We call this my one word. I don't know if you've ever tried to do New Year's resolutions. They were a disaster for me. Most of the time, I couldn't find them after I wrote them down in about three weeks. And then I'd be going through the junk drawer looking for a screwdriver or a paper clip or a bobby pin, whatever I'm needing at the time in the junk drawer. Everybody have a junk drawer in their house? Some of you have more than one, right? Amen. So we got one, and uh, no matter how many times we clean it, it turns to junk again in about a week. I don't know how that happens. It's like automatic pilot. But I'll find my last year's resolutions in the back of the junk drawer. It's just crumpled up and it's like forgotten. But I learned a number of years ago, because I heard this from somebody else, how about instead of doing 10 New Year's resolutions, how about we take one word and let that word become a theme. Let that become a focus point for the next year. And so a number of years ago, Annette and I started doing this. In fact, uh, instead of writing out a list, here it is. Try coming up with one word that captures your heart for the coming year. This is so simple, a caveman could do it. That's a guy co-commercial. Here's some examples, and these are some from the past that, that I've had. Uh, freedom, simplify, discovery, engage, presence. There's more. But these are just words that we take as a one-year focus. Sometimes Annette and I will join our words together. Like last year, it was discover freedom. And we kind of blue blurred the line. There's no rules here. We sort of blurred the line a little bit, and that was our, our joint word. This year, my one word is this, joy. 
I wanted to choose fun, but Annette said that didn't sound spiritual enough, so she, <laughs> she, gave, she gave me joy instead. And I'm like, but I know what it means. I, I want to be so full of joy. That's what the word joyful means. It means full of joy. And her word is encounter because she wants to encounter Jesus at a fresh place, a fresh level, a new place of encounter. So I want to invite you to do this. What is one word that captures your heart for the next year? What's hard for me is if I overthink it, I'll come up with 30 words, as you can tell. No surprise, right? And so I was actually thinking this morning, driving in, my words joy. And as I was doing it, I was thinking about Christ in you, the hope of glory. And the word hope means confident and joyful expectation of desired good. And I thought, oh, no, I'm going to be, I'm going to go with hope because it's joy. And I just literally just thought myself into a spiral. So I'm, I'm reeling it back in and I'm going to embrace joy. In his presence is fullness of joy. The joy of the Lord is my strength. Amen. Rejoice in the Lord, I say again, I say rejoice. So what would be your one word for the year? I would love for you to tell me what that is, not like right now out loud. But come say something. Just say, hey, this is my word for the year. Now, some of you already know you've, you've shared that. We've shared that in our life group, some, our small group, connect group, and we, we've talked a little bit about it. But I want to invite you to embrace a word. Even ask, Lord, what would be, what's the theme you have for me in this next year? I want to embrace that. And then let's lean into a new year with expectation and excitement about what he's going to bring our way. Amen? Our team's going to lead us in worship. I want to pray. Father, in the name of Jesus, we're so grateful for your goodness. Lord, I'm grateful that Jesus is asleep in our boat. That boat's not going down. And I'm grateful for that. Father, give us grace to practice benevolent detachment. Father, what is the theme? What, what, what one word would you have for anybody here today? What is that one word? In fact, I invite all of you right now with your head bowed and your eye closed to say, Lord, what, what word would you have me engage for the next year? Is there one? There's no rules. It could be three. It, it, whatever it is that's in your heart and on your heart. Lord, would you speak to our hearts even now? And as we make this turn into a new chapter, a new season, may we do it with great expectation and excitement about what you want to bring, great enthusiasm about what you want to bring our way. And we'll embrace it with our whole heart. So Father, would you release over our people today, right here, right now, their one word. We love you and we honor you in Jesus' name. Amen.